Calvary Church is located in beautiful Peterborough, Ontario, and is committed to impacting that community with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. Each week, one of our preaching team draw powerful life application truths from the Bible. Check us out here or online at calvaryptbo.church. This is week number two of a four-week series that we have started where we're looking at the book of Joel. Now, last week, Pastor Giovanni, our Spanish church pastor, started and, uh, and communicated very fluently in Spanish all of the chapter one, the, the kind of the history behind the book of Joel that we are aware of, and then looked at chapter one. Now, I'm not speaking Spanish today because uh, I'm not very fluent in my uh, Hispaniol. But, uh, but he did a great job at helping us understand this whole premise behind the book of Joel. And, and his point that he tried to get at last time, or last week, is that sometimes God uses extreme measures to draw us closer to him. Sometimes God allows things to happen. Sometimes God is even in the midst of causing those things to happen for the sole purpose of drawing us closer to him, getting our focus back on him. Now, some of us are thick-headed, and, uh, and you have to learn these lessons a little bit more often than others. You know, some people like to learn from mistakes. Some people, even better, like to learn from other people's mistakes, which is an awesome way to do it because it saves you a whole heap of trouble. But some... Some just got to go through the hard knocks of life before God can really get into your head and you begin to realize, oh, I'm just being stupid. The nation of Israel was kind of like that. And so in chapter 1, we looked at the the history of uh, what Joel started writing this book as a result of a swarm of locusts that came in and just devoured devoured the crops of the nation of Israel to such a degree that Joel recognized, okay, this isn't just a little locust thing going on here. This is God in the midst of this, and he's trying to make a point, and he's trying to get our attention. And so that was chapter 1, but chapter 2, he doesn't stop there. Joel actually says, with even more intensity than he talked about in chapter 1, he says, but it's not over. It's not over, Israel. So we've got to be ready. Now, so we're going to pick it up in chapter 2. Now, if you have your Bible with you, the book of Joel is a little bit past halfway. So if you open up your Bible midway through, you're probably going to land in the book of Psalms. Keep going uh, to near the wards the end. You'll pass Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel. And so uh, Joel is a small book amongst a bunch of small books, and so it may take a little bit for you to find it. But I encourage you to bring your Bible with you, uh, make notes in your Bible, or even on on your tablet or your phone, you can highlight different passages of Scripture. You can make notes for yourself on that. It's good to have the Word in your hands, whether it be archaic way of paper or digital. It doesn't matter. It's good for you to interact with that. You can read it on the screen. That's nice, but... I don't want you writing on the screen your notes. I'd rather you write it where you can get them tomorrow. And, uh, and so pay attention to that. So Joel chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. Joel's making a point right off the hop in this second chapter. 
He's saying, hey, he's blowing the trumpet. He's, he's rally crying the, the people of Israel. He, he's saying, Israel, a battle is about to happen. Now, in the nation of Israel, for the larger cities, they would often have walls built around the city. And so they would have people, guards up on top of the walls that would patrol and, and keep an, a lookout for when imminent danger was coming. And when imminent danger would be approaching the city, they would get out the ram horn and they would blow. And so what Joel is saying here is something they already recognize. They're hearing the ram's horn, which means that danger is imminent. Get ready, get your battle gear on. There's a fight a-brewing and we've got to fight for all of our life. And so, so he's making that point for the, the city. And it was about the day of the Lord. He's saying the imminent danger that's coming is the day of the Lord. A day promised would come when God would intervene not on behalf of, but against Israel. This was a, a terminology, the day of the Lord is something that the nation already, they were well aware of this term. And Joel is saying, it's about to happen, Israel. The Lord is going to battle against us. Now, for someone who's all-powerful, all-knowing, I think the people should be paying close attention to this. But maybe they're not. Maybe that didn't conjure up enough for them. So Joel continues on to describe what this day of the Lord is going to be like. In verse 2 it says, the day, A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them fire devours, behind them flames blaze. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses, they gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops. Like a crackling fire-consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle, at the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking rank. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them, the earth shakes. The heavens tremble. The sun and moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number and mighty is the army that obeys his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who? Who can endure it? See, people, Joel is promising, just like other prophets had promised, that God would actually fight against his chosen people. Now, I know that that kind of seems harsh. You're like, seriously, God's a God of love. Why in the world would God do this? This is his people. He's supposed to be fighting for them, not against them. It seems harsh, yes. But we got to look through this through the eyes of God. See, God's point in his actions 
is that he's desperately trying to stop a catastrophic or catastrophe from happening as a result of humanity's insistence of pushing him away. It's like he's saying, people, quit piling upon yourself a greater penalty for your actions. Think of it, think of it like a judge who is forced to convict real offenders with a stronger penalty every single time they come before him. And so God may be forced to do so as well with the nation. Not because he wants to, but because he has to. See, God doesn't delight in inflicting punishment on people. Many of you are parents now at different stages. Maybe some of you are in the thick of it and you have little rugrats running around your house waking you up at weird hours of the night. Others of you have grandkids that are doing that. <laughs> but it, for those of you who are parents, remember back in those days when you were disciplining your children when they were younger? Many of you probably said something along these lines, or, or at least you're like me, at least you thought it. When, uh, when you would say, you know, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Now, as a child, you're like, yeah, right. You have no idea what you're talking about. You know, you're crazy. This isn't going to hurt you. But as a parent, you totally understand. And you can only understand that as a parent. In many respects, this is the way God is approaching this. God doesn't enjoy inflicting punishment on his people but he understands the value of discipline. He understands how much it hurts him to do this. But yet for their good and for all humanity, it was needed. Let's keep, keep going. Listen to, to how, how Joel describes what God is asking of these people. In verse 12, it says, Even now declares the Lord. Return, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and, even, and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. See, as we saw last week, Joel is, is talking to the people of Israel, God's chosen people. And the last thing he desires is to inflict the punishment on his children because he's a gracious God. That's who God is. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. I think... We're often guilty of viewing God's actions in light of how we would respond. You know, I, if you're anything like me, I think oftentimes when someone does something wrong against me, I want justice. But I want justice not because I care about the person, but because I want to inflict as much pain on them or even more pain than what they inflicted on me. It's kind of how we as humans act many times, right? But that's not the way God acts. 
God doesn't do something to, out of anger in the fact that he wants to, to hurt you because you hurt him. He does it because he cares about you and he wants to draw your attention back to him. He's extending justice in the truest form. The Apostle Paul talks about, uses an analogy for us, and I think it kind of helps us understand a little bit better how God moves and works. He, he talks about the people of God being the body, the body of Christ, he decide, de, defines it. And just like our personal bodies at times act up, and we need to take action on it, so does the body of Christ need to have action taken up upon it. Think of it this way. I, I, a number of years ago, I had a, a planter's wart on the bottom of my foot. I don't know if you've ever experienced a planter's wart on the bottom of your foot or not. It's not fun. So, uh, so anyways, I went to the, the dermatologist, and, and, uh, and she was a sweet lady until she started working on me. And the next thing I know, she's inflicting on the bottom of my foot a pain that I've never experienced before in my life. And I almost popped her in the nose a few different times because it was so painful. She injected like a, uh, well, she froze it with uh, nitroglycerin or whatever it was. And, and she was like, oh, this will help. And you'll have to come back in a couple of weeks. And we'll probably have to do this every two weeks for an extended period of time. And I'm thinking to myself, what in the world is wrong with you, woman? And, and we've experienced those moments before in life, whether it be something as simple as that, or maybe it's a surgery we've had to do, or chemotherapy, or, or something of that magnitude, where we actually have to inflict pain upon ourselves in order for it to heal, in order for our body to heal. It's kind of oxymoron in many respects, but that's the way things are. And in, in, when we look at the body of God, the body of Christ, all of humanity over an extended period of time, there are certain times through the journey of humanity where God has had to say, for the sake of the greater good of the body of Christ, this has to be dealt with and has to be dealt with now. It, it's not fun. See, I, I let that planter's ward on my, the bottom of my foot for an extended period of time because I knew, I knew what pain was going to endure by going through the healing process. I was just hoping it was going to go away. But it didn't. And in many respects, God being slow to anger hopes in the journey that we're going to turn our attention back to him and reject our old ways and get rid of our, our, the sin in our life long before he has to deal with it. Sometimes we don't. And so we see again in verse 15, Joel comes back to this rallying cry Blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders. Gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why? Why should they say among the people, where is their God? 
Joel is, is reminding us that God is calling us to repentance, to turn back to Him, to receive Him, make ourselves right with Him. You see, he's giving some insight as to why all of this is so important. See, God had chosen, like I said, the, the, the nation of Israel out of every other nation to show every other nation how to live this life to the fullest through living the way God designed us to live. Now, we know as a result of Christ, we no longer have to be born into the nation of Israel. We now can, as a follower of Jesus Christ, become his people. And so this message is for us just as much as it is for them way back in the time it was written. Because we, we need to be demonstrating who Christ is who God is through our lives and everywhere we go. Why? Because we can't be making a mockery of God. If we declare, some of us declare, you know, on Stats, card, or Stats Canada cards that we're Christians, but yet in the midst of our life we're stealing from work. Simple things, just little things. We're gossiping about our neighbor. Just little gossips. Oh, so I was just, just communicating to my friends. I'm just, just digressing. We're sleeping around on our spouses. We're cheating out on our taxes. We're just doing little things. Nothing major. Nothing big. People are watching, though. If people know that you claim to be a Christian, oh, you go to that big church out on Lansdowne. Mm-hmm. That's what Christians do. You know, I think our country is obviously in a significantly... A significant moral decline, no question about it. Unfortunately, the church, in many respects, is following the pathway of our society. And people, God is calling us to repentance. God is calling us to turn our attention back on Him, to live as He desires. For us to live. Now we can wait. We can wait until he has to deal with us. Or we can learn and deal with it now in our lives. One theologian says this of the three words that are used in the Greek Gospels to describe the process of repentance, one emphasizes the emotional element of regret, sorrow over the past evil course of life. Then the second expresses reversal of the entire mental attitude. Finally, the third denotes a change in the direction of life, one goal being substituted for another. So, repentance is not limited to any single faculty of the mind. It engages the entire person, the intellect, the will, 
and affections. Repentance involves a change both of mind and heart, which leads naturally to a change of life. See, repentance is dealing with the sin in our life. Everything that is offensive to God. Repentance is dealing with that sin. And so we, if we are truly to repent, then we must deal with sin. And I want to look at deal as an acronym a little bit if we can today. Because when you need to handle and, and move and get the sin out of your life, here are four simple steps that you can take in the steps of repentance. First of all, D stands for define the sin. This is the first step in, in AA is to at least admit you have a problem. You must define what the sin is in your life or else you won't be able to deal with it. Oswald Chambers in his uh, devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, says, Jesus Christ said that when the Holy Spirit came, he would convict people of sin. And when the Holy Spirit stirs a person's conscience and brings him into the presence of God, it is not that person's relationship with others that bothers him, but it's his relationship with God. Against you, David, the psalmist David says, against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. You see, sometimes, sometimes our sins are obvious, and we're, we're well aware of the fact that, oh, I shouldn't be doing this. Uh, this is a sin in my life. Whether it's a one-time thing, whether it's a, a perpetual, ongoing thing, sometimes it's very obvious. Other times it's not so obvious. And the Holy Spirit needs to be able to speak into our life, and we must be able to say to God, okay, Jesus, I want to be more like you. In order for me to be more like you, I need to see those blind spots in me. So where do I need to grow? Where do I need to change? What do I need to rid my life of? And you very well may not be aware of some of those things, but as we begin to pray and ask God through his spirit to reveal those things to us, he works in us. And he says, okay, if you're ready, here's what we want to deal with next. Let's touch this area. Okay. And we can move about in that direction. But we have to define the sin. We have to know what the sin is in order to deal with it. Second thing we need to do is we need to re, uh, express remorse. The E, express remorse. Remorse is, now remorse is different than repentance. You can be remorseful but not repentant. But you can't have repentance without remorse. Now how often do we feel bad about doing something? We may even say that, why, you know, we come across something we're like, oh man, why did I do that? But that doesn't mean, even though we recognize that, that doesn't mean our actions are going to change. We, we feel bad, but then we go and we do it again. You know, when a man leaves a woman's home, he hops in his car and he says, Oh, I shouldn't have been there. I shouldn't have done that. But yet he finds himself going back a week later. There was remorse, but that's not repentance. A woman talking poorly about her husband or about a coworker or about a neighbor may, after the words come out of her mouth, say, oh, I shouldn't have said that. Biet finds herself doing the exact same thing the next time that person's over. That's remorse. 
It's not repentance. One commentator says, In remorse a man sees the bitter end of sin, but in repentance he breaks free from it. Remorse comes of itself at the end of a sinful and foolish way. See, we have to feel remorse. We must feel a deep, deep sorrow of remorse for our sins. Oswald Chamber says, My sins, my sins, my Savior, how sad on thee they fall. If we don't come to grips with the offense of our actions we, toward God, then we haven't really paved the way for repentance. Another commentator says this way, all, sins, uh, all sin makes us guilty, and that guilt is only removed at the cost of the blood of God himself, who voluntarily took on flesh and lived a perfect life, never once ceding to temptation. Though tempted by the prince of lies himself, he voluntarily clothed himself in that very sin and took on the wrath of God. Hell itself at Calvary. People, that's what Jesus did for you. And if that does not make us ashamed when we sin, not sure what will. But not only do you need to feel the remorse, you have to express the remorse. Calling out to God ultimately and, and on those maybe whom we've sinned against, begging for their forgiveness. Now I would venture to say that some of you are stuck in your faith journey today because you've, you have unconfessed sin in your life. You know you're wrong, but maybe you've refused to feel remorse, to own your actions and express it to God or the ones you're, you've offended. Or maybe you don't even feel that you're worthy to be forgiven. And so you choose to hold on to that pain. Listen, you know what that is? That's still you trying to protect yourself. That is all about you. But we're not the center of the universe. God is. It's not about protecting us. It's about having a right relationship with him. In true repentance, there must be a complete emptying of self at the cross of Christ and being, begin fighting at all costs to rid your life of what is separating you from God. You've got to express your remorse. So define the sin. Express remorse. Third, adjust your attitude. This can't be done on your own, though. It must be done in partnership or in tandem with the Holy Spirit. Now, there, there has to be a determination in you to fight through this with the strength of the Spirit. True repentance doesn't mean you'll never be, be tempted to sin this way again. There will be times. It will come back. So we must allow the Spirit of God to help us become the image of God He desires us to be. So when you, when you do stumble, because we will stumble, sometimes our faith journey is like walking three steps forward and two steps back at times. So there are times where you are going to stumble. But when you catch yourself stumbling, how do you respond? Is it, ah, well, I guess I'll, I'll just be like this forever. 
Might as well just give up. No, no, that's not how we respond. We get back up and we say, I will not allow Satan to defeat me like this. I am going to get back up. I'm going to dust myself off and begin this journey of forgiveness all over again. There has to be that determination to never get up, give up. We have to adjust our attitude and allow the Spirit of God to be able to mold us and shape us into the person He's calling us to be. We must, with the power of the Spirit, have that determined attitude to fight for the right relationship with Christ. An attitude that knows, as a result of my confession, He is faithful and He is just. He will forgive us of our sins. See, we stand as a child of God, victorious, not defeated in Him. When we come to Him, when we define that sin, when we, when we uh, express our remorse or confess our sins, and we allow Him to adjust our attitude so that it's focused on Him, and He begins to mold us and shape us, we walk victorious in that. And the last thing we need to do is we need to launch in the right direction. If we want to deal with the sin in our life, we need to launch in the right direction. With our eyes focused on Him, we grow in who we are in Christ. We spend time in prayer. We spend time reading His Word. We spend time immersing ourselves in worship. We spend time connecting with other believers, serving in, for His purposes in our life. We give every aspect of our life, and we focus it on Him, and we live for Him, and we move in that direction. You see, when we're living in right relationship with God, we make God's name great. People look at us and they say, there's something different about this person who calls himself a Christian. Their God is a God that I want. That's a God that I need in my life. That's not a God to be joked about or mocked, one to, but one to be loved and accepted as Lord and Savior in their life. That's what he's calling us to. So what is it that God is bringing you? What journey is God bringing you through right now? And he's trying to grab your attention and you're refusing to listen. What is it in your life that God needs to shape and mold but you're holding on for dear life for whatever reason? Jesus is saying, deal with it. Define that area. Let him, let him be able to, to open your eyes to see what he wants to do in you. Express your remorse. Adjust your attitude. And then launch in the right direction he wants us to go in. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us as pitied fools. We all deserve eternal punishment. None of us deserve eternal life with you. Yet you open a way for us to have that right relationship with you. Some may be here today, God, and you know who they are. I, I may not necessarily know who they are, but you know who they are. Those who, maybe they've been pretending to walk 
and everybody else around thinks that they're doing well as a follower of Christ, but in actuality, you know different. God, would you speak to that individual today? Maybe there's some who are here and they've never accepted. This is their first time maybe even in a church and they've never heard that you want to have a right relationship as the God of the universe. You want to have a right relationship with them. And they want to turn their life and deal with their sin today. God, I pray that you'd reveal yourself to them. For, for the vast, I would assume, majority of people who are here, Lord, what is that next level that we need to take in you? Where do we need to go next? What is it in us that you would like to deal with? Lord, may you open our eyes to be able to deal with that today. Help us, Lord, to understand that you want to be real and present in our life right now where we are. And may we do it appropriately, I pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you need to wrestle with this for a little bit. And Kim and the team are going to play for just a, a little bit longer. If you, if you need to wrestle with it, don't run out of here. Don't rush out of here. Spend some time wrestling with God, asking God to help you deal with your sin. If you need someone to talk to, I'm around. Some of the other pastoral staff are here as well. Please feel free to come and talk with me. Let us pray with you. Let us help you along on this journey. But may we go each and every day longing to deal with those things in our life that God wants us to deal with. And as you go from here at some point, whether it be immediately or after a season here, may you go knowing that God wants to speak to you each and every day. Spend time this week focusing on him and allowing him to speak with you. God bless.